Saddle and ready to ride from the Sunshine State. I'm Greg Carlwood, and whether you start off with a study of conspiracy, consciousness, or the stories and megalithic sites of the ancient world, all roads pretty much lead to an understanding that our current culture is carefully corralled away from anything that invokes empowerment, spiritual development, self mastery, or true freedom. We've been quarantined away from all knowledge of altered states, astral travel, sacred geometry, and the natural physics and energy systems that could be harnessed to build an advanced society in tune with the environment in which we live. Maybe even one that emphasizes the value of deeper exploration of the inner and outer worlds. But hey, at least we have an infinite stream of Marvel movies and a new Call of Duty every year, so who's really living in the best of times, right? Well, today we're talking to the man who doesn't stop when it comes to digging into the deepest depths of what's been lost and highlighting the value of engaging with it, Jason Quit. His high strangeness experiences started at a young age and opened the door to a lifelong exploration of the deeper questions. He graduated from the Institute of Energy Wellness in 2005 and began working with ancient healing techniques and actually became a student of Algonquin shamanism. From his out-of-body experiences, Jason received information on numerous energetic systems of healing and spiritual development. He then published those methods in his newly expanded upon and re-released book, Egyptian Postures of Power, Mysticism, Meditations, and Movements. Then, when exploring ancient sites in Egypt, he had yet another aha moment that led to the writing of his most recent book, Astral Genesis, Astrological Keys to the Gods. You can find even more good stuff on his website, thecrystalsun.com, but this is sure to be a wild one, so strap yourself in. The esoteric author, astral travel adventurer, and ancient world insight extractor, Jason Quit. welcome to the higher side. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, man, thanks for being here. I am glad I was introduced to your work, and it's nice to try to find ways to talk about what this world could be, given how off the rails everything is. Because the contrast is pretty stark, but going over the plans of the World Economic Forum cabal once again is only going to take us so far, you know? Yeah, I tend to kind of stay away from that type of mind control, <laughs> brainwashing. <laughs> it's a very scary world if you actually read into it. Yes, yes, it is. Yes, it is. And so I know you might be sick of going over your childhood experiences once again, but for the unfamiliar, I think it helps establish you as someone who has some authority in the areas of consciousness and spirituality because you were made aware of the larger than material world from such an early age and have been studying and engaging with some of the esoteric mechanisms ever since. And I understand it all starts with a dehydrated shadow being that would show up in your closet. Is that right? That's the only way I could describe it. And just like most children or many children, you know, you're afraid of what's under the bed. You're afraid of what's in the closet. You're afraid of the dark. And with me, I believe that, actually, I don't believe, I know my house was haunted. 
it was definitely a paranormal hotspot. And when I would go to sleep at night as a very young child, I had a closet door directly in front of my bed. And that door had to be shut completely or I couldn't go to sleep. And, you know, just like in scary or haunted movies, in the middle of the night, you hear the door start to open. <laughs> you know, and as a child, you know, you go under your covers, you're scared. And, you know, when I, um, looked into the closet, all I could see was this figure that it was like a shadow with form. And after I started to really examine it, because it's happened multiple, multiple times, the only way I could describe it from a child's perspective was like a dehydrated person or like what you would see like a scarecrow, because it was a kind of a shadowy thing that did have form, but you couldn't really make it out. And this is where I kind of got opened up or started into this paranormal world. And this shadow being, it would, I guess, take me out of my body at night. It was the astral world. I didn't know what the astral world was. When you're a child, you just think that it's a dream or you're with... All I knew, it was very real. And this shadow would kind of like take me around the house or take me outside. And when I would go, let's say, outside or look outside, it wouldn't be the backyard that I would see in this physical world. It's almost like I was looking back in time, like there was like a cornfield or some type of farming in the backyard. It just looked completely different. It would take me into the basement. It showed me like a coffin, showed me inside the coffin that there was a body in there. And so my interpretation of this was that this was some type of entity it could have lived in this area before, and it was kind of showing me what it was. So this was kind of like my introduction into the paranormal side of things. But, you know, growing up in that house, there was always wacky stuff going on, like TVs turning on and off, voices you would hear in the basement or in other rooms. There's many times my mother would yell at me saying, you know, Jason, you left the TV on in the basement again. And then you could hear it upstairs. You could hear that there's something going on. There's a TV on downstairs. And so I would run downstairs knowing I didn't turn the TV on. And as I go downstairs and come into the room, the TV's off and there's no sound. Mm. So, you know, there's a lot of different stories. And even my brother growing up in the same house, he experienced a number of things as well. But it wasn't until my early 20s that things really started to pop off spiritually in that world. Hmm. Yes, I've heard you talk about this stuff before, and it sounds quite amazing, though you have said that the things you were often shown were usually quite dark. Apocalyptic scenes, war zones, and even what you think might have been some of your own deaths in previous incarnations, right? And this is where it kind of breaks my mind as a child, because the things that I was shown or witnessed are not things that a child would normally see, not even in movies. And I started to have these past life rememberings come back to me very early on in childhood that I didn't understand what was going on. 
And some of these past lives, like you were saying, were very brutal. I would say 99% of the past lives that I've recalled are during like the last moments of death for some reason. I don't know why that is, but it's almost like you remember who you were, but it's almost at the end. And it's usually traumatic. And I guess back in the past, it was a lot more traumatic ways to go. <laughs> so past lives were just, you know, seeing wars or, or fighting to the death or, you know, just brutal things. But it wasn't until in my mid 20s that I started to have, I would say, prophetic astral travels that would show me different timelines or different things that were also traumatic. And that's the thing with this whole thing. People would talk about spiritual experiences as this kind of, you know, rainbows and unicorns and ascended masters and things like this. That is not what I've ever really experienced. It's always been pretty brutal, very terrifying and scary, and I wouldn't recommend it on my best friend. Those type of experiences because they're profound and they change you, but they really open your eyes to a much grander uh, world or worldview that then is accepted in our modern world today. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. And I'm curious if you have any insight into the motivations of this shadow being. I'm always curious when I hear these stories. It always sounds so like human focused. Like you mentioned the ascended masters. It's this mythology that, well, these very powerful beings just come down and teach us to grow wheat in rows. And they're just thrilled to do that. It's like, well, what what are these beings? I don't know if they have full regular lives the way we think of them, but what are they doing when they're just not teaching humanity? It's always so humanity focused. And you got this shadow being that shows up in the closet at night. What motivates him or it to, to take you on these journeys? Did it ever communicate anything like that to you or what its role was or what it does when it's not taking you on these crazy journeys? You know, at first you get into the conspiracy side or religious side of things where you think that these are demons or shadows or, you know, they're not there for us. And eventually you start to learn that maybe there's a deeper connection between you and this thing. It could be an aspect of your consciousness. It could be a past self, could be just another you in a different form. So it's almost like when this thing started to come to me as a child, it kind of got me used to the experience. And when it started to come to me in my middle 20s or my early 20s, I looked at it more as an initiator. And it's like once it kind of taught me how to do certain things, it would just kind of leave me alone and then I can do it myself. So I think it is an aspect of our consciousness even though we're very afraid of it at first, then over time you kind of get used to the fact that there's this kind of shadow that is kind of with you on these journeys and usually guiding you and taking you places. Usually if you're going on a journey, it could be behind you and you can sometimes feel it like having its hand on the back of your shoulder 
it's almost like a shadow. Like you can kind of see like this thing behind you. And it's just in my perspective today, it's just another aspect of our multidimensional self to help navigate these worlds. Yeah, almost sounds like the ghost of future past or whatever it is in the Christmas Carol. <laughs> Arm on the shoulder, showing you things. Man, and I've heard you on Fade to Black going pretty deep on the history of UFOs, putting it in context with the invention of radio and Tesla saying he was receiving radio waves from Mars. I do like that little chapter of history, but given these astral experiences, do you think that UFOs and these little skinny humanoid experiences are also a, a deeper or wider part of our consciousness? What do you think is at the core of that relationship? It's this idea that I've kind of seen throughout history with many different people, and it kind of goes by the words, the hidden hand that guides. And it's almost like we have these invisible forces that speak to us through our dreams, that help guide us, that even download or give us information when it needs to be brought into physical manifestation. So for example, someone like Tesla, who started to bring this electrical knowledge or AC knowledge into the physical world, he was definitely divinely inspired. And same with many inventions, especially in medicine and technology and science, they all came in dream states. So there is this kind of connection to this other side where we have these invisible forces that kind of guide us through life and gift us certain knowledge to bring into the world to guide all of humanity in certain directions. Hmm. Yeah, I'm familiar with that perspective, that motif, but it's just odd because so often humanity does not listen to those people who have those kind of messages. You got to dig pretty deep and be very interested in, say, the alien experiencer body of work to, to really find those commonalities across those who have them. And they ultimately don't seem to result in much, nor do the crop circle messages or anything like that. So for such an intelligent being, it's like, maybe you should find a different approach. I think it really is a personal journey. And a lot of these messages or downloads, they come through to be very personal. They change people's courses and lives. So for example, I was living a normal life, whatever normal is, right? I, I was working. I didn't have any spiritual inclination in my mind about that world. And then I started having these experiences and it forced me to completely change my worldview. It forced me to quit my job. It forced me to go back to school and learn certain things and basically seek guidance and help. And that's where I went and traveled and you know learned from shamans and holistic healers to try to figure out what was really going on. Because in this kind of world, you know, if you go to a psychiatrist <laughs> and tell them, you know, this is what's happening to me, they'll just write you a prescription or lock you up, basically. So it is a profound change when you have this type of visitation. Most people that receive information, 
they try to get it out. But again, you have to also discern, you know, what is good information, what is bad information, because, you know, I've seen the complete opposite happen where there's some type of contact experience. Let's say someone is visited by an angel and now they've completely changed their lives. They've quit their jobs. They leave their family. They give away their possessions and basically they're ridiculed in society and lose everything. And then 10 years later, they realize that, you know, what was the benefit of receiving that information? So you have to kind of weigh the things as in, is this information going to help myself and others, or is this going to hinder myself and others? And this is where we kind of get into this area where we can say, it's coming from a negative being or it's coming from a positive being. And when you start working in this world, you'll learn very quickly, hopefully, that you can't really trust anything from that side of things that, you know, a being can come to you that looks like an angel, talks like an angel, says it's an angel, and it's telling you to do crazy things that no angel should be telling you to do, hmm. right? So there is a type of manipulation on these levels of things that we have to be very aware and very cautious about as well. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And <laughs> I hate to go back to another motivation question, but in that example, like let's say like some demon that is using the guise of an angel is asking you to do really dark stuff. Like, hey, why don't you go down to the grocery store and just uh, start clearing house or something? Once they think they've gained your trust, I still wonder what motivates them to do that. Do they just like to see chaos on the physical plane? Or do you think, like Charles Ford did, that there is some type of energy feeding that's going on, that we are kind of property to these beings that seem to pull certain strings and really like to feed off of the chaos or off of negative emotion in the physical. The way that I see it is everything has a hunger. Everything has to eat. And we generate energy. The physical body is a vessel to the spiritual world. And by gaining our trust and us giving our energy or our awareness over to another being, what you're doing is you're pulling that being closer to you. So they'll have more of a energy connection to this world and they'll have more of a connection to receive energy through thoughts, through emotions in this world. So when you start to see a lot of people that get connected to these type of beings, the first couple of years, these beings kind of feed the person very ego-driven information, like you're the king, you're the ambassador, you only speak for this group of aliens, you know, you were chosen because, you know, your energy is the strongest on the planet type of thing, you know? <laughs> so they really build up the ego of the person receiving this information and then also giving them information that's quite good. 
So that when they speak to people, people are like, wow, that's, you know, really good channeled information. And I've seen this happen to multiple people over the past 20 years. I've been watching this closely. And I find it very, very sad, but I've seen people that have started off with like amazing information and an amazing connection to certain beings. And then five, 10, 15, 20 years later, these people are completely wrecked and the information that they're giving people is so backwards that it's causing harm to other people. So, you know, it's sad to watch this kind of progression, but, you know, the more that they've given their trust and the more that they've connected to these beings, the more they've basically kind of given up their sovereignty and it's harder and harder for them to get rid of these things. So it becomes like a, an energetic siphoning happening or an energetic exchange. And over time, the identity of the entity starts to work its way into the individual. So we have to really figure out when we do this type of works, our boundaries. Are we going to let this information in? Are we going to let this information change our lives? And is this information positive? for our lives or positive for other people's lives. So we really have to sit back and just be aware that not all the information that we receive from a spiritual source or a non-human force is beneficial or is there to help you. So there is this type of manipulation that could occur. And this is known about for thousands of years in most religions, they always talk about tricksters and entities and things of that nature. And then they also talk about the good energies too. So we have to learn how to distinguish between these two type of forces. But usually, we open ourselves up to either force or both forces at any time because we're human. We're open to influence. We carry wounds and traumas, and the way we think and the way we feel will actually attract certain type of spiritual forces towards us. So, you know, if we're putting our mindset towards healing and meditation and things of that nature, we will attract those type of energies to us. Whereas if we're connected to, let's say, addictions or obsessions or traumas, emotions, things of that nature, will attract beings that like that type of energies. So when you start healing or going down the shamanic path, you'll notice that when you start to heal, a lot of dark stuff will start to come to you. And it's not because you're doing it wrong. It's because those forces don't want you to shift. They don't want you to let go of some of the lower energies that you're carrying some of the wounds or traumas or thoughts or emotions that you're carrying because each one of those things is like a portal to non-physical consciousness or non-physical entities so that if you start to close and heal those wounds you may make those energies very angry and upset and they will try their best to keep those portals open so it becomes kind of this fight through healing to close down and remove these attachments, remove these entities so that you're not drained, you're not pulled, you're not manipulated, 
energetically and you can be strong and independent on yourself. And I think that's one of the most important lessons that I've learned doing this is that you have to stay very neutral and very grounded in the physical because you don't really want to be pulled in either direction. You want to take the information, integrate it within the physical body and use it to you know, make a better life for yourself, integrate and heal, things of that nature. So when I'm dealing or working in the astral world, or if I have some type of contact experience, I sit with it for a very long time before I start running out and, you know, yelling it to the world, unless I think it's a teachable moment or a teachable experience that this crazy thing happened to me and this is what I think it means. But what I find is a lot of these beings, you can call them higher beings or guides or whatever you want to call them, they usually step back. They don't really drop information in your lap. They kind of give you an idea or show you something that motivates you. And once you have that motivation, you go out and you learn these things. You go out and try to figure out what's going on. It's not like handed to you on a platter. For example, when they were teaching me these Egyptian postures for healing, I had no idea what it was. And it took me years of research and years of diving into esoteric knowledge to figure out you know, what this all means and what it does to, and, and how it connects to energy systems, to Qigong, to the sun, to the moon, to the earth, to the elements, how the energy flows through the physical body. So they didn't give me that information. I had to learn that information, but they gave me the seed, you know? And I think that's what changes through different people is that uh, some people just sit there and they'll receive and channel all this information. But, you know, what does that information do for them? Is it just stuff to go right to your head? Or make you feel good just from hearing the words or getting the energetic connection? Or is it building you into a better you? So, you know, what power do these words or these energies that these non human intelligences give to us? And, you know, what is the motivation and purpose from one side or the other? I think is what you were getting at. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Wise words. It seems like cultivating our discernment is quite important. And I want to get into the postures of power. I want to get into your latest book, but on the subject of entities involved in our lives, you talked about the attraction they have to our own tendencies. And then if our tendencies are negative, negative beings will be like, oh, this is my guy. I'm going to latch on and amplify this up a bit. Well, do these beings, do you think from the other side, do they recognize our societal structure, our hierarchy, do they recognize power and do they attach themselves to people who, because of their positions of power, can influence their will or direct their will on reality even more so? A Klaus Schwab, a Bill Gates, I mean, not these people in particular, but you hear about an occult dimension to the big conspiracy, the power elite. In your experience, does that 
seem to be true. Do they recognize power? Do these people maybe have an unadvertised relationship with something from the other side that's driving them deeper and further down the dark path? This is a very ancient thing, and it's been known for a long time that there are certain beings you know, that you call upon to take on certain roles in society. So is it possible? Uh, you know, I would just say, yes, it's absolutely possible. Some people will do rituals to connect to certain beings for those purposes. And that's also a very ancient thing. That's nothing new. But these beings can read our minds. They read our thoughts. They read our emotions. They know our history, our memories. So it could be very hard for a person to separate that, you know, how does it's almost like your own voice speaking in your mind? Like, how crazy is that? You know, we have a conversation in our mind all the time. Some people, the chatter is nonstop all day long. And it's in our voice, but how do you know that's us? Mm. You know, how do you know what's influencing that other voice? And many people think, well, that's just my own mind. It's in my own head. They don't realize that the mind is outside the body. The mind is a field and it can be influenced and downloaded certain things. So it could be swayed, absolutely. And this is where we have to kind of use different techniques like meditation. And this is why meditation is so powerful is that you have to learn how to quiet the mind and shut that other voice off. I'll just tell you a quick experience. There was a time where I was meditating, you know, every day. That was kind of my ritual. I would meditate, do Qigong. And, you know, I would always have this other voice in my mind that I thought was me, you know, you know, going back, talking certain things out in my mind before I say them or do things. And I was meditating one day and silencing the mind. And I heard this kind of click. It was like a physical click, like a click or a pop. I heard it in my mind's ear or whatever you want to call it. And then I just heard like, it was almost like a white noise type of sound. And that white noise kind of flushed through my body. And after that happened, that voice was gone. And I couldn't believe what it was like because I went, when I'm walking around or I'm listening to people, there's nothing going on in my mind. Usually growing up, just a normal person or a normal mind, before I would talk to anybody or say anything, or do anything, I would have this conversation in my mind about what I'm going to do or what I'm going to say. And I kind of like go through it in my mind before I do it. And when that's gone, it's so freeing in a way that everything is just in this type of flow where everything just came spontaneously, but perfectly. So there was this type of influence that we learn about that the mind can be a very open receiver and that things can influence how we think, how we dream. And I think most people already know this, that 
you know, when you're having a dream and it's just such a weird dream, or you're walking down the street and you have this thought pop in your mind and you're like, that is so out of character for the way I think. Like, how did I get this thought that just popped in my mind? It's because the mind is a receiver. And sometimes we'll pick up on things that's not ours. Sometimes there's an energy imprint of the environment. Sometimes there's beings or non physical energies in the realm of the mind that is sending thoughts to us. So we have to kind of learn how to separate what is our mind and what are we being receptive to? What is influencing our mind? And then how do we integrate that information? And we could all practice this. It's all things that we can learn how to do. And, and a lot of mentalists learn how to do this is basically you hold, let's say, a thought in your mind. And that thought is, let's say, of a, a popular TV show or something funny or an old memory that you shared with somebody. And what you do is you hold that information in your mind and you wait for the other person to randomly talk about it. <laughs> so it's like you can learn how to broadcast your thoughts so that others can be receptive to those thoughts and then they're influenced to say what you're thinking of. So you can actually get quite good at this if you start practicing holding the thoughts. Wow. But that's how it works on us. We are a receptive mental being. <laughs> I like it. That's a great explanation. And I'm going to start trying that. And to get into your latest book a bit, Astral Genesis, Astrological Keys of the Gods. And thanks for sharing that with me. This is obviously a bit of a switching of the gears. And a lot of that book's material is quite visual, showing the astrological symbols, the cubit unit of measurement, and correspondences in Egyptian art, statues, and mythology. Some people might think, well, we already know about some astrological correspondences in the Egyptian myths and the structures on the Giza Plateau. The encoding of the path of the sun is well documented in the mythology. Well, what is it that you uncovered here that hadn't really been broken down before? What I found was that hidden within the artwork itself was the hidden geometry of the sun, of the stars, and the angles of the rising and setting. Basically, that in different cultures spread across the entire planet, they had the same type of mythology, themes, motifs, all relating to the passage of the sun and the rising and setting of stars in the sky for the seasons. And that they all had this ancient language of geometry, this ancient star knowledge that was encoded in their artifacts, in their writings, in their paintings, and just in the artwork in general from these ancient people, even the architecture, they would hide this kind of geometric language of these dates, of these stars, right into the artwork. And, you know, when you think of someone, let's say, like Leonardo da Vinci, for example, and you look at his artwork, there's another layer 
of information in that artwork that if you're not taught what to see, if you're not taught what to look for, you will never see it. You will never decode it. And this is what I found in artwork going back 12,000 years, all the way back to Gobekli Tepe, is that within the artwork itself, there's a certain geometry fingerprint. There's a motif theme that carries through to cultures around the entire planet, and they're using the exact same measurements, the exact same themes, and sometimes the exact same symbols to describe it. And what that is telling me, and what makes this such an incredible find for me, is that it means that this information was already well established pre 12,000 years ago. And all these cultures from around the world, they all knew about it. So it was almost like all the cultures around the world had one language. And then suddenly, through the separation of populations, they have their own language, their own customs, their own histories. But when you break it all down, there's this original knowledge there that had to have been taught to these people going back to the last ice age. So for me, it's evidence that at one time in history, there was one knowledge, there was one powerful language of the stars that the population of Earth knew, and that somehow it was taken away from the public. And the only way that it survived today is by, I guess, initiates, I guess, people that held these special teachings, and they put them in the artwork. So that if you learn these keys to actually see what this artwork says, it's a completely different symbol. It completely tells a different story. And suddenly things make sense. So that was the discovery that, or say a rediscovery that um, I put in the book Astral Genesis. And I found this code all the way from Gobekli Tepe to ancient Egypt to Sumeria. And then I found the exact same thing in Peru, Bolivia, in Central America, in Canada even, I found it, and in America. So once you see this motif all over the world, the only conclusion that I can come to is that this had to have been taught to the people and had to have been taught at a very early time in history and then passed down through, let's say, a priesthood or some type of secret society because we continue to see this type of code coming up into artwork, let's say like Da Vinci, or coming up to artwork that we see on the Native Americans before colonization. So it's here, and it's a language that we don't understand because we can't read it until somebody teaches us the language. And once we learn that language, we start to see the stories, the mythology, the religious texts, the artwork itself, it starts to tell a very different story, and it's related to the stars. It's related to the sun, the moon, the earth. And 
it's an amazing story that goes back to our earliest ancestors. So the question is, who taught this information? Who had this information to give? And this kind of gets into the work of, let's say, like Graham Hancock, where, you know, there was a destruction, a flood, ancient apocalypse, and somehow the knowledge from that ancient world is now passed through certain societies, certain priesthoods, and kept very secret to try to continue that unbroken chain of knowledge, which is just the oldest story ever told, which is the story of the sun moving through the stars. And what it means at each gate, at each constellation, what does that mean to our life on planet Earth? And what do the movements of the planets mean? So humanity must have documented the movement of the stars, the movements of the planets for thousands of years to come up with these large cycles, the procession, you know, that's about 26,000 years. So maybe we had to go through it twice. So that's like over 50,000 years. So we have a long history of documenting how our world works. And I think they even knew the world was round back then. I think they even knew the circumference of the earth. They knew so much that they probably were more knowledgeable about these things than most people today <laughs> know about these things because they had the time to observe nature and observe the cycles. Yes, that is basically what I was going to ask you. So there is a lot of acknowledgement in the alternative field of this cohesion across the ancient world. The debate seems to be on if the source of information was spiritual or physical. Did remnants of the last civilization at its collapse really travel globally in the ancient past and start teaching people in a material, physical way? Or is it more that a culture embedded in nature with a strong sense of spirituality will arrive at a lot of this stuff in a non-physical sense, from a non-physical source? Maybe the consciousness of the earth itself tells people about itself. What do you think about that division and in which way do you lean? Do you think it was physical or, or a non-physical source? It's something that I've talked about before, which I'm a firm believer of, is that, like I said, the mind is a field. And the earth is the energetic fields of the earth or the magnetic fields of the earth is, it's kind of like the Akashic records. It holds all the memory of the experiences here. So if we would lose everything, if we're going to start again a hundred years from now, the Akashic record or the electromagnetic field of the earth, the mind of experiences that previous generations have left here. I think that would be able to be downloaded or received by those that can tune into that. So there is that side of things where we do pick up on things. Also, cellular memory, we may have a connection to that type of information. But when you really look at this evidence and see how detailed it is, how mathematically detailed it is, where it comes to very specific measurements and how things are drawn even how certain symbols are drawn with a very specific 
message hidden within it, it leads to me that this was taught. This was something that was actually given to civilization or passed down through priesthoods or secret societies or whatever. But this language, this geometric language of the stars, of the sun, of the moon, is somehow integrated into some of the most famous artifacts, some of the most famous paintings, the most famous temples. This knowledge is basically imprinted on these things so that future generations will pick up on it when they're ready to pick up on it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. And you repeatedly show this angle, 23.5 degrees. The solar key, as you say, is all over the place. And you also show the motif of the serpent in many different contexts, uh, where often it's cut into fourths with this angle, often with the head pointing towards the rising or setting sun. You mentioned the serpent mound in Ohio, which many people are aware of, but also two lesser known serpent mounds in Ontario and one in Rice County, Kansas City of all places. And I am curious, you know, with all this stuff, we can acknowledge that it's there. If we wanted to go conspiratorial, I often do. Why is it so, I don't know if important is the word, but it seems like there is intention from the top down put into us not knowing this stuff. They seem to really want us to be unaware of this global connection and unaware of the code within. And I sometimes think, is it possible that this emphasis on time and celestial management related to the potency of ritual or the potency of the consciousness effects that we might consider paranormal or magical? If we get in sync with natural time, maybe we see better results with some of these natural technologies that they clearly don't want us to possess. I think that's bang on truth. I think that the whole concept is to remove the ancient wisdom. And by removing the ancient wisdom, you disconnect us from that circadian rhythm of time and space of where we are on the planet Earth where we are, are in our lives. And this is the whole concept of magic and having that kind of magical existence. Because when you're connected to that force, when you're connected to the land, the sun, the moon, and you understand the cycles of time, you are now in sync with it. And this is why it pains me to say this, but when you look at colonization, when you look at the Inquisition, when you look at even you know Romans coming to your village. The whole purpose of that was to decimate the knowledge. You know, that when they came over to South America, Central America, any of those temples, any of that knowledge, the standing structures, the stones, the buildings, they were dismantled because we weren't supposed to know what those sites did because they were a source of power and inspiration and magic to the people. And the only way to control those populations is to sever the roots. And that's where we are today, is that we're so disconnected, we don't have any roots, we don't know our roots. And because of that, we're easily manipulated, easily controlled. And the type of information that is given to us 
is, you know, religious dogma that was basically created by despicable rulers, you know, Constantine, the Roman Empire. It was used to colonize. It was used to assert domination to say that we are the connection to God. You can only get to God through us or through the priesthood, through that society. And if not, you know, we're going to make your life miserable or we're just going to kill you. And, you know, we live a very cushy life today. We don't realize the thousands of years of living under that kind of mindset, <laughs> you know? So we're very lucky today. We don't deal with that in a sense, but the damage is completely done. And this is also why it's not really given much time in the mainstream to talk about anything that we're talking about here because it doesn't serve the mainstream. We need to believe that our ancestors were dumb cavemen, you know, lived in caves. We need to believe the story that, you know, these conquerors saved us from ourselves, you know, our savage way of being. And oh my God, we were pagans. We believed in the earth and we were so stupid. We believed that the sun was our gods and we worshiped the sun. That is not the truth. And that's just kind of demonizing the ancient knowledge that these people held so that you would destroy and belittle the knowledge of the people. And by doing so, you maintain your rule, you maintain your control. So, this is why when you go to archaeological sites, even though, let's say, they're timekeeping devices, let's say, like Serpent Mount is a timekeeping device because the sun will rise and set at different parts of that serpent. So it's a timepiece, it's an earth timepiece. And you can go to the people there that run the show and you ask them about it and they say, oh, no, no, that's, you know, we don't talk about that stuff. It's like, well, that's the purpose of it or one of the purposes of it. And it all has to do with this magical thinking, like why serpents, you know? And I was actually near, because where I live, I live up in Canada. Rice Lake is not too far from me and there's a, a serpent mound there. And I was up at the cottage about an hour or yeah, it's about two hours from that location up at the lake. And it was around the summer solstice time and sun is setting into the lake. You know, it's a beautiful scene. And the light from the sun is cast on the water like a giant golden serpent. And the waves are making this serpentine motion in the water. And it's making the sun on the water look like a giant snake swimming towards the sun. And I'm thinking, this is so beautiful. Is this the meaning? Is this where this all comes from? Or one of the reasons this comes from this. So who knows the original purpose or meaning of it, but somehow it's an observation of an effect of time and space. And that effect is now symbolized to mean that the snake is going towards the sun or to devour the sun 
mm-hmm. or chasing the sun into the western horizon. Yeah, yeah, I like it. And on the subject of some of this lost technology and its usefulness, I wanted to get your thoughts on stargates, or maybe we call them stone gates, because there's a lot of these ancient sites that have doorways cut into the rock, and there are stories about shamanic travel and uh, the ability for these doorways to open up. I actually took this from your book, but you say, throughout Peru, there are many examples of false doors, but none as famous as the Gate of the Gods, carved directly out of the side of a stone encropping. This site, which is located very close to Lake Titicaca, features a T-shaped door in the style we see from the stone pillars found at Gobekli Tepe. Tourists flock to this sacred destination every day to stand in the doorway, meditating to connect with other worlds and beings. The local legend says an Incan priest who had the golden disc of the sun placed the disc in the doorway, which was the key to open the door. This is the same false door solar theme retold in Sumeria and Egypt, where the sun is able to open the door and pass through it on special days. Ding, 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 special days. You have to know the cycles to use the technology. But what more could you say about this old stone gate technology? And what do you think the golden disc was? Is that another symbol or analogy for the actual celestial sun? Well, I've heard of two different types of experiences. One is the more shamanic and spiritual side where they do actually sit and do rituals and ceremonies on certain days where they will leave their body and travel through those doorways to other worlds and dimensions. I've heard this multiple times by different shamans that that's what they do. The other thing that these doors are used for are timekeeping things. So on certain days, let's say like the equinox or solstice, or even it could be aligned to any day really. But what they do is they position these doorways so that they're kind of like a sundial, so that the doors are usually beveled in a certain way that the shadow will show up on those doors. So at only certain times of the year, there won't be a shadow. The sun will be directly through that door or alignment through that door. And we see this type of motif, especially when you see three windows, which you see this a lot in Peru. You see this a lot in Egypt. It's these three viewing windows. You even see it in The Last Supper by Leonardo da Vinci. You see the three windows behind the table or a door and two windows next to it. And the idea is that in the equinox, when the sun is in the middle, right due east, or due west, depending on rising or setting, the sun will come directly through the middle gate, the middle window. And then during the solstices, summer or winter, it'll come through the left window or the right window. So they would set up their alignments through these windows to allow the gate of that energy or the gate of that sun to come through. So the windows themselves or the doors become timepieces for very specific special dates of time. You see this in the temples of Egypt, where at certain days the sun will come directly into the temple. And basically, they call it impregnating the womb. So the seed of the sun comes into the temple, just like the womb of the earth, and impregnates it. And that is the start of the new year or the start of the regeneration of life, which is the story of Osiris. And these doorways 
are found also in the necropolises, where they put these false doors up, you know, because the soul or the spirit was looked at just as like the sun, you know, it was the light of the person. And they would put the false doors on the tombs. And basically, the idea was that on very special days, the ka of that person, the spirit of that person, can travel through that doorway into the tomb to regenerate its ka, its energy, to be fed, to be nurtured, and then travel back to the spirit world only on very specific days of the year. So again, it's the same type of motif and concept that the sun, the light, at very specific angles and in very specific times will travel through certain doors or through certain windows. And this will show or keep everybody in the know of the cycles of the year. Mm. Yeah, I love it. It starts to make a lot more sense. Sometimes we only get the first part of this, which is, oh, the ancients, they had advanced timekeeping and it was all about tracking the sun and it was probably just because they wanted their crops to grow or they'd all die and that's where the story ends but it goes a lot lot deeper than that yeah and again it's how did they come up with these mythologies how did they come up with these motifs and then how can it be a worldwide knowledge and that's where it kind of shows you that at one time in history we worked together and one time in history, we were like one community, one knowledge, and somehow we were spread across the earth. <laughs> this sounds like the Tower of Babel story, actually. Yeah, it does. You know, and there's another motif for you right there. <laughs> so, you know, the Tower of Babel is they spoke one language, and because of that, they could do everything. They were building to the heavens to be like gods, and God said, no, we're going to take away your language and spread you across the earth. It's pretty much what, what it looks like now that we're finding all these artifacts, actually. Right, right. Indeed. And I know I got to let you go. We're kind of at the end of the line. But one more thing I wanted to slide in here, kind of related to ancient Egypt, is you know, if you had a culture that explored all this stuff day in, day out, dedicated to it, I've heard people refer to the pyramids as an immortality machine. And I think that is meant in the sense that when you do experience astral travel often and these modalities, you can stretch time in a sense. You can live entire lifetimes in an afternoon. And if you were doing this all the time, the added longevity you'd get to a human experience is maybe 10x, maybe 100x. Do you find that to be somewhat true? I do. I think that there was a type of ritualistic side of the pyramid. And this is what different chambers and sarcophagus was, where you would go or the initiate would go and meditate in certain chambers. And they would have these experiences of the paranormal, of the other world, of leaving their bodies, and then having teachers to teach them and guide them through those processes so that they would learn the secrets. They would learn their connection. They would learn that they're immortal spirits and that, you know, the body dies, spirit lives on. And it's not just a teaching, it's 
if they leave their body and have those experiences, they've now conquered death. And by doing so, they've become this immortal mind that knows that they exist beyond the physical world. And from that, they start to learn and teach. So yes, it's, it is an accelerator, I believe, or these teachings are an accelerator of consciousness, of our true nature, of who we are. And that, that's why these sites were so sacred and so important to our ancient ancestors. Yeah, I tend to agree. But man, I loved this. We covered a ton of ground. It was a lot of fun, despite the connection issues. And before we really call it in, give the people your links and let them know about any ways they can follow up on this or anything you're going to be working on next. I'm going to be going to Contact in the Desert coming up in June in Palm Springs, California. Heck yeah. So you can hear me lecture there about astral genesis and about out-of-body experiences. You could also find my works on Amazon.com. You can check out my books, Astral Genesis and Egyptian Postures of Power. And you can find me on Twitter, which is <laughs> more of my social. I don't have Facebook or Instagram or TikTok or anything like that because for some reason I've been banned. <laughs> I'm on one of those lists. Oh. I guess. <laughs> yes. I guess they didn't like what I was talking about. <laughs> you know, so you can only find me on Twitter, Jason underscore quit, and my website, which you can find crystals, books, and other fun things, thecrystalsun.com. Right on. Yes. And I think it's a good practice to get back to going to individual websites the way the internet started out. You had to be told about a website, you'd go there. You didn't have all these big corporate conglomerate middlemen directing you where you should go and what doors can be opened and which ones can't. So yeah, just go to the crystal sun and uh, all your wildest dreams will come true, right? So obviously good deal. I appreciate this, <laughs> this wide range of subjects you've applied your talents to. It's been a lot of fun. Hopefully we can do it again sometime with better circumstances, but until then take care out there. Sure. Thanks. And I hope it comes out well with all the, the cuts, but happy to do it. Oh, don't you worry about all them cuts, Jason. It came out just fine. This is what I do. Yes, people. Good to be back. Good to be back. And really enjoyed this one getting into Jason's work. There's just something about him and these lifelong experiences that elevate his material, if you ask me. On another interview, I heard him mention that a contractor had found a dead crow stuck in his bedroom wall when he was young, and symbolically, crows can represent the trickster, or they sometimes represent liminal spaces and being walkers between the worlds, kind of like owls, but that's just another odd thing in his story. But anyway, yes, the cuts he was referencing is something we should talk about. And this interview with Jason was the first and only show I tried to record with Earthlink Internet. If you don't know anything about Earthlink, it's basically a phone line because it connects via a SIM card. But there is fiber internet in my area, but the company had to do some engineering and had to get a crew out here to get it to me. And that was taking a long time. So I got Earthlink to try and hold me over 
And I thought, great, I don't have to go lugging all my stuff to a hotel to record interviews. I can finally get back to doing them at home. Well, the internet dropped out on me and Jason over a dozen times. And as frustrated as I was, I'm sure it was even more frustrating to have to back up when you're on a roll, to have to remember what you were saying and keep your train of thought. Ugh, he did a great job, though, and I'm pretty sure almost, if not all, actually, of the cuts are undetectable. The only real evidence is that this show does come in a bit light time-wise because there was so much disconnecting and reconnecting and all that. I like to be respectful of the time I asked for and not keep people longer than we agreed to. So it happened. That is what it is. But I think we got a good interview overall, and I went right back to the hotel for the other shows in May. The internet thing, though, was holding up my ability to shoot interviews over to my editor. It held up my ability to just upload episodes to you. But it didn't stop me from getting over to that Best Western three times last week to record some interviews that I think you're going to love just as much as any other. And for Plus members listening to this one today, my cats don't follow me to the Best Western, so that rare instance of me causing a massive mid-show disturbance won't happen again. Also, Plus members heard a lot in that second hour today that I wouldn't have wanted to miss. We talked about the book Forbidden Knowledge, Revelations of a Multidimensional Time Traveler with Bob Mitchell. We talked about Tesla's hidden medical devices, healing Jason's broken back, the Egyptian postures of power, understanding the power and effects of crystals. We got into the metaphysical value of a beach environment and how to become more sensitive to subtle energies, among other things. Sign up for Plus already. Stop missing half the show. Five shows a month for just eight bucks. It's time. And the five shows a month commitment stands strong. I'm 90% of the way through the woods, and I'm a Florida man now. But I hadn't set up my life anywhere new in 13 years, and I forgot how involved it is. It's a lot more than just getting here, especially with a toddler and a pregnant wife. But hey, these are my problems, not yours. And thanks to Jason for being a good sport and bearing with me. I know it wasn't easy, but he is great at what he does. He knows his wheelhouse well. And I heard several things from him in this that have been following me ever since. Mainly a lot of the stuff about timing and natural cyclical time versus the artificial time constructs we tend to operate in. And really how much of the magic is right there, but we just don't have that part of the instruction manual that tells us when we have to use it. Which goes a long way in helping to explain why time is such a key part of keeping us in modern day ignorance. And why it's so important to keep us divorced from the natural system overall. Plus, the Inquisition, we know, was to stomp out natural spirituality and replace it with the corporate sky god. But this other stuff that went with it is of huge importance. And when you combine what the Greek was saying with what Jason is saying, the implications become a bit more clear and why they felt they had to do this to seize control everywhere seems more clear as well. I thought he summarized a lot of that with a ton of clarity and it was just a good time. So much of current events right now is just off the rails insane that it's good to just take a break from all that and do something unexpected. 
but with a guest who still gets it, as Jason does. If you're going to contact in the desert, the Woodstock of UFO conferences, drop in and see Jason and tell him you heard him here on THC. I'm glad they moved the conference out of the Joshua Tree Desert because that was rough. I went two years, and the second year the power went out. It was pretty wild. <laughs> but anyway, also you could get at him on Twitter, Jason underscore quit with two T's, or just reply to my post of the show. He'll be tagged in it. I'm laying it on thick, but I really just want him to get some good feedback considering how difficult the recording session was. It was real amateur hour on my part, so please let him know that people do actually listen to this show and did get something out of this appearance. But I am going to cut this short. Once we take a peek at the meetup calendar, HiresideMeetups.com, let's see what we got on deck. May 18th, Pensacola, Florida. May 19th, Pearl Blossom, California. May 19th, we got one happening in Bali. If you were in Bali and you listen to THC, I don't know how you could not go to that. May 21st, Sussex, New Jersey. May 24th, Seattle, Washington. And May 27th, Los Angeles, California. Stuff happening all over this great land. And if you hear about an event that's close to you, go meet some new friends and have a drink over the common ground that is the Higher Side Chats. If you don't hear about one near you, then just hop on the calendar and make one free and open to anybody. Make an event and they will come. Strengthening the network is damn important, you know? But hey, I love you guys. Thanks for sticking with me through my difficult transition. And big thanks again to Jason. He knows a lot about a lot. But I've done my part. Your move, kid stalking, closet shadow people, Egyptian posers, and stone gate portal openers. Your fucking move. Oh no, you see, the world isn't random, it's attached to puppet strings, control over everything. Nine to five is trying to steal ya Now don't that job seem silly Hello, can you hear me? Or should I play back recordings From some spy agency Wish we were younger and free I'll be thankful when it's all exposed The vast conspiracy such a difference between us and the dead
cartoons It's so typical of me to talk about this stuff I'm sorry, that's good and well Did you ever hear the argument that nothing really happens? It's no secret and that the best is plus It's doubling your time